Uh, speaking of, you know, state state repression and uh, the, <laughs> the overweening German state, uh, we have the topic today is the changes to East German universities following the fall of the wall. The higher education systems in East and West really combine in this very, very unequal manner. This is a process called Abwicklung or phase out. So redundant departments were dissolved, kind of like how, you know, uh, supposedly redundant factories were dissolved um, in, a, in a similar fashion. So, for example, at the former Karl Marx University in Leipzig, uh, which was then renamed University of Leipzig, had its law, political science and journalism programs shut down. While Humboldt University in Berlin, uh, it had its philosophy, law and history programs were closed and then reopened to allow for staff restructuring. So almost like a, what like a private equity company would do if they buy out a company, they like declare bankruptcy so they can break everyone's union contracts and then reopen it so they can get a more precarious workforce. Yeah. And this is like exactly what we want to focus on is this like Abwicklung, this phasing out and you know, who's deciding what departments are superfluous or a term they used a lot was politically in need of renewal. Mm. It's like, oh, <laughs> right, that. <laughs> um, and yeah, like Ted said, the existing staff like could apply for their job that they had a day ago and were encouraged to apply, you know, but uh, carrying the stigma of, like having been phased out, right? Like your institute is shut down and the new institute in its place is like founded and then you're like encouraged to apply. That sounds and great. And you need to cool. compete with all these, all the people from the West who are then going to be favored because then the people appointed to like run the departments are Westerners. And so like, and we don't want to overly like romanticize the, the the teaching in the East. I mean, like by by most accounts, like some of the the Marxist theory that was taught tended to be a bit maybe dogmatic and not not necessarily the most kind of interesting scholarship um, relative to some some other things going on. But at the same time, I mean, from the perspective of a, of a professor there, right? Like you sort of think that you've got tenure, you've got like a a lifetime job here, and then all of a sudden that's like that's taken away. And so you know, emphasizing the kind of the human cost here right and this also came along with like a lot of changes in curriculum obviously like they kind of went into the east german system and like they they redid the curriculum basically it, it i don't even want to say it like examined like they they just like replaced it in a lot of senses and a uh, communications professor at the time said that Quote, in German studies, literary studies, and philosophy, chairs are filled conservatively with very, very few exceptions. So getting these kind of like key social sciences mm. um, filled with the conservatives. <laughs> At Humboldt University, really like a, a crown jewel of the East, um, of the big, one of the two big universities in Berlin. Um, and an example of the scientific prowess in the socialist world conducted really extensive and well-regarded research, including partnering with dozens of universities across the communist bloc. Um, actually, Angela Davis, the renowned um, African-American academic and activist, she studied there in the late 1960s and received her doctorate there. But of course, like all Eastern German universities, Humboldt 
also embody this upheaval that they felt and they faced after the fall of the wall. Um, some of the more radical proposals actually included privatizing the university by selling it for one Deutschmark. Uh, Imagine if they Kohl, did that. <laughs> apparently Helmut Kohl favored this, but it never got implemented. Oh, my God. Yeah. That, I mean. I guess it could have been worse, yeah. Oh. So that gives you an idea of how much they valued anything in East Germany, that this like famous university in the center of Berlin which now is, I mean, it's, it's now again regarded as one of the best uh, universities in Germany. <laughs> they thought that, you know, oh, we'll sell it for one Deutschmark. Like, basically what they did to every other, every other site of economic activity in the whole country. When I was reading about this, most of, like, where I'm sourcing is this, uh, the Center for Political Education, this German thing. We'll link to it in the description, maybe, if you read German. It's a pretty good overview. And I found it so funny that this this one guy, I'll read the quote of like how he describes the takeover and um, they like lead up to it by saying, well, it's a it's a clash. It's a coming together of German, German cultures. <laughs> and it's um, that just like sounded so funny to me that like the like hyphenated Deutsch, Deutsche, like Wissenschafts. <laughs> I was like, wait, OK. <laughs> But yeah, this guy, Wolfgang Kaschuba, he was an ethnologist at Humboldt, and he describes this kind of uh, situation in the style of a uh, ethnological field diary. Uh, this is the quote, foreigners advance into the territory of an indigenous tribal culture. They take over the key positions of chiefs and medicine men there, destroy native traditions, proclaim new beliefs, establish new rights, the classic paradigm then of an inter-ethnic cultural conflict, except that its setting is not Papua New Guinea, but quite unexotically close in Berlin unter den Linden. Um, what, what I want to talk about specifically that I that I actually have firsthand experience, um, I, I studied it at Humboldt for a year um, in a, an econ master's there. Um, but what I want to talk about is actually it's about the sort of international implications of this, which I found really interesting because uh, Humboldt had longstanding ties, like I said, you know, with, with many other communist universities, which didn't just include the Eastern Bloc, but also included the University of Havana in Cuba. Um, they say, at the, I think the DAD, the German like scholarship and educational promotional institution, they cite, quote, intensive educational cooperation between Cuba and the GDR spanning over three decades. And so I say this because one of the things that I participated in when I was a student there was this summer school at the University of Havana as part of the, the econ program. And this dates to the GDR era. But now, of course, they're not teaching Marxian economics. They're just teaching typical neoclassical <laughs> economics. But the tie remains. The nature of these ties, of course, after the wall, you know, it, it changed the previous dynamic. And so instead of these communist era scientific links, now Humboldt, as part of this program I mentioned, conducts business, economics and entrepreneurship programs at the University of Havana. And so every year, these German students come there and instruct Cuban counterparts in the art of capitalism, basically. Uh, there's really almost no flow of Marxist economic thought in the other direction. And so 
I find it really interesting because through this link, right, the sort of the demarxification of the Eastern universities, it's not just a process that the East had to experience, but now it's actually exported, you know, all the way to Cuba. We should say, you know, maybe this process in this sort of like high neoliberal capitalist triumphalist period of like the 90s and early 2000s, right, this this didn't last forever. Um, we're obviously not back to uh, the DDR, but I think there has been a bit of a move left in the academy. I think especially after the 2007-2008 global financial crisis, a lot of more neoclassical economics fell out of favor as a lot of students and scholars, maybe they dug back to some older thinkers, um, you know, that's Keynes or Minsky or Marx, uh, to try to make sense of the chaos. And, you know, today with inequality still rising and capitalism looking more unstable and and a lot of the contradictions of our system being realized, I think Marxism has experienced a resurgence in many circles, including Berlin. And Isaac has talked to someone who uh, is a part of that resurgence, I think we could say. I guess I'm wondering what your kind of, uh, how, how you describe maybe the kind of reception within German academia to these kinds of ideas today. Well, it's not kind of totally frowned upon, but at the beginning, there was not that much enthusiasm on the part of colleagues. Mm. There was lots of enthusiasm on the part of students when I kind of, you know, mm. taught um, my first kind of class on, on Marxian theory, um, when kind of, you know, students just kind of, you know, flocked into that class and were really excited about learning about, uh, uh, about Marxian theory and also engaging with um, Capital, the first volume in particular, and when I um, decided to teach my first class on uh, Marxian theory, um, some kind of, you know, colleagues sort of gave me some raised eyebrows and asked me, what has that got to do with North America? <clears throat> and um, I think that was more the sort of the kind of reception, um, which had far less to do with the um, that particular history. <clears throat> so I overall think that from the 2010 onwards... 2010s onwards, particularly in the wake of the um, the 2008 financial crisis, mm. there was a kind of resurgence of, of interest in, in, in Marx and, and Marxian, Marxian theory overall. Um, so it has become accepted again, to an extent, at least. When you mentioned that, you know, these days people uh, may be sort of more open-minded about it, are you referring specifically to sort of within the academic community or also more generally? Because it seems like maybe from from at least my perspective and from maybe on a surface level, it seems like that's not necessarily like borne out in the sort of general population or in their sort of relationship to sort of these ideas. Or or, or would you argue that, that that also is happening? Probably, probably not as much. But even there, the thing is, if you and, and, and I experienced that myself, and I know this is very anecdotal. And but when you kind of talk to people um, about capitalism, and kind of explain how you kind of see it from a Marxist perspective without mentioning the name Marx, then many would sort of again, this is my experience, very anecdotally, will quite intuitively um, agree on many of these points. To some extent, the kind of the label Marxism, Marxian, uh, Marxism may be a hindrance 
to to kind of critique of of, uh, of, of capitalism itself because of mm. the kind of you know bad connotation it has um, acquired over the over the decades because I think ultimately a lot of people feel that there is something wrong mm. and that there's something wrong with capitalism specifically. They may not know what, they may not know why, but they feel it and often they kind of feel it on a very sort of personal, material level. And this in and of itself, I think, um, um, leads to more acceptance to the ideas, but not necessarily to the label under which these ideas come. One of the questions that we had is about sort of whether there's this kind of perception that maybe there's a bias that scholarship conducted through sort of a Marxist lens has, and that therefore maybe it, it's perceived as like less scientific, scientifically rigorous than other schools of thought. And if maybe, um, you know, when you're kind of operating with or yeah, Marxian theory or, or applying Marxian theory to your to your writing and your research, if there if that then requires sort of this uh, balancing act or having to um, sort of show that you're producing, you know, very rigorous scholarship. I'm not, like, is that sort of a, something that you've encountered at all? Mm, yes, I think, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a sort of, you know, pretty fair summary. Yeah. To some extent it's sort of, it, it means that you, you have to work um, a bit harder and um, show your kind of, you know, credentials, mm. but also I think it has not, maybe not so much to do with kind of, you know, Marxism itself, but with other kind of, you know, fault lines within the social sciences around um, what is sort of, you know, social scientific research. And um, some people would kind of, you know, say that only if it's sort of, you know, empirical and quantitative, does it count as scientific? Um, and I think that's probably, that probably kind of plays a bigger role than the 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 opposition than any opposition to 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 Marxism, although that that is definitely a factor, and I think that that's undeniable. That was a preview of our premium episode. You can listen to the whole episode if you become a supporter of Spaßbremse on Patreon. There will be a link to our Patreon page in the show notes. And if you're not able to support us monetarily right now, we totally get it. There will be another full-length episode coming to your podcast feeds next week. As always, thank you so much for listening. Tschüss!